look, there's really no other way for me to say it. You're missing out. If you're not playing this, you're missing out. It's the free contests on the NBC Sports Predictor app. They've already handed out over $3 million in cash prizes, and there are tens of thousands more up for grabs this and every week. So get in on the action right now with the NBC Sports Predictor app powered by PointsBet. For the biggest names in sports talk, watch the NBC Sports Channel every weekday on Peacock. Featuring pro football talk, the Dan Patrick Show, the Ritz Eisen Show, and more. Streaming live for free on PeacockTV.com slash NBC Sports. Hello, I'm Peter King. Welcome to the MMQB Podcast with Peter King, where I take you inside the minds of the biggest influencers in the NFL. This week, a bit of a Super Bowl show. We've got Josh McDaniels, the offensive coordinator of the Super Bowl champion, New England Patriots, right from the interview room a few minutes after the Super Bowl. And we've got new San Francisco general manager, John Lynch. I asked McDaniels, why is Tom Brady so darn good? I mean, he's a great, great, great player, but he's a better human being. And to have his season end like this, in this type of a setting, under these circumstances, with his family here, you know, he's had a lot of great moments in pro football, but uh, this one's certainly going to rank right up there at the top. I asked John Lynch, do you understand why people are skeptical and maybe a little bit cynical about a guy who hasn't been a scout getting one of the most important scouting jobs in football. I would probably be a cynic if I was playing safety for 15 years and some guy came and all of a sudden he's the starter you know, out of the blue. But I understand full well that the only way I'm going to earn the trust of all those people who might be cynical is to put a great product on the team that's competing for championships. Now my conversation with New England offensive coordinator Josh McDaniels. Joined by Josh McDaniels on the MMQB podcast with Peter King. Well, Josh, here we are. You're in the uh, interview room after the Super Bowl. The greatest comeback in NFL history. No team in NFL history has ever been behind by as much as you were behind in the, in the fourth quarter and won the game. Teams were 93-0, and went up by at least 19 entering the fourth quarter, and the New England Patriots came back and won the game. Just what's going through your mind? Yeah. You know, I, we were just trying to, to string together good plays and, and create some good series. And we never really talked about the score. Uh, we talked about let's go out there and do our job and try to get some points on the board. And, again, once it got to 28-12, to 12, we then we said, look, we got two championship drives. we got to put together two championship drives. But also and we two, knew we were going to And we knew we were going to have to do that at the end. But we had those already. We had already practiced what we were going to do. We had confidence in what we were going to do. And so, you know, once it got to 28 to 12, even though we had to settle for a field goal on that drive, we came to the Did you give any thought down, you know, it was 28 9. Yeah. Did you give any thought to going for it on fourth down? Um, I think if it would have been shorter, maybe. You know what I mean? I think we ended up having a sack and then uh, maybe even another sack. And it was like at the 14 or 15 yard line. So to go for it there on fourth down, again, we knew if we kicked the field goal, it was a 16-point game. So you got, you know, you got a chance to make it a two-possession game. Things got to go right. You got to convert two two-pointers, and we did. Uh, but that's what we put ourselves in situation to do. <clears throat> what was Tom Brady like at halftime of this game? Calm, confident, you know, and just basic. Hey, let's we got to play better. You know, we're all going to go out there and play better. 
and let's put some pressure on them by going out there and executing our job. I mean, that's, I mean, that's football. I mean, we had played 20 minutes in the first half on off, 20 minutes time of possession. We knew we were in the 40s already at the play count. We knew that there's a chance in a Super Bowl that one team can kind of, you know, get gassed and maybe lose a little steam as the game goes on if they're out there long enough. And so we talked about our conditioning having to play a factor, and Tommy's resolve and leadership was incredible. I mean, you're down 21-3 to three at half or whatever it was, and then yeah, he's talking about, listen, let's do one play at a time. One play at a time. Let's put together a couple good plays, get a first down, then let's go down and score a touchdown, and let's see what happens. You know, and, and that's, that's what the, the, the players adopted that whole entire philosophy in the second half, never lost their confidence, and went out and played their butt off. <laughs> what happened at halftime? What did you say to your offense? Well, we didn't take a good, good enough care of the ball in the first half. You know, we knew that Atlanta was tremendous at taking the ball away, you know, and, and to be able to uh, give them two turnovers, one for a touchdown in the first half, I mean, that was almost exactly how we didn't want to play the game. So just said, look, you know, it's a little bit more of a man-to-man cover game than what, what they had played maybe historically throughout the course of the season. But, you know, that, that was something we had to adjust to a little bit, and, and, and we had to beat some man-to-man throughout the entire game, which is a little bit different. They played a lot more man than you thought, huh? They did. Well, yeah. I mean, we knew they played man. They played post-safety man and post-safety zone, and they different types of situations. They do it differently, but this game was definitely more man-to-man. They were trying to take away the easy completions, you know what I mean? And I think in, in large part they did a little bit of that in the first half, and then we worked you know, through some different things and tried to, uh, a few different concepts on them, and our guys got open and caught the ball better. <clears throat> you got to tell me about the first two-point conversion that you made mm-hmm. with the bizarre direct snap to James White. You've seen that here before in a Super Bowl in Houston. We did that with Kevin Falk back in in Houston against Carolina. 12 years ago. Back in 2003. That's right. Yeah. Um, so we kind of brought it back from the grave a little bit. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and just... Have you run it. that play at all all year? No. No. You run it last year? <clears throat> I don't think we did. Yeah. You know, so it was just a situation where we felt like the defense that they were in gave us a chance at it, you know, and James, uh, you know, got the ball and then you know, stuck it in there and, and made his way over the goal line. The amazing thing about the second two-point conversion is that it's life or death. That's it. You either get the ball over the goal line, and, and Amendola is attacked at the goal line, and he made it by six inches. Yep. It's kind of like that Antonio Brown play, sticking the ball over the end line against the uh, uh, Ravens. But what was the design of that play? Yeah, very similar. You know, I mean, really – you, you, they had three on three over there, and we just kind of motioned Danny, and then Jules and. And Hogan. didn't Chris Hogan yeah, kind of set a little did. pick there? They both blocked a couple, got two of the three guys, and we just told Danny, "You're going to catch it and get it over the goal line." Yeah. And Danny's tough as hell, and you know that's why Danny's in that position. You know what I mean? And yeah. Hogs and Jules are just as tough, and that's why they're blocking for him. So yeah. we just wanted to get the ball to him and give him a chance to go ahead and follow two guys and stuff it over the goal line, and he did a great job of it. Did you have a moment with Tom Brady after this game? I haven't game? seen him yet. Yeah, so I'm him? looking forward to seeing him. He got mobbed at the end of the game, and I didn't get an opportunity to, so I'm looking forward to that. It'll There's a, nothing a great left feeling. to say, is there? It'll be a great feeling. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it's rode over on the bus with him today, and, you know, I'm so happy for him. as a. I mean, he's a great, great, great player, but he's a better human being. And to have his season end like this, in this type of a setting, under these circumstances with his family here, his mom and dad, his sisters, you know, his kids, his wife. You know, he's had a lot of great moments in pro football, but uh, this one's certainly going to rank right up there at the top. This one, it's the best comeback in NFL history. How does it not rank at the top? He's 39 years old. Yep. 
and again, it doesn't look like we're going to slow down. <laughs> no, you're not. You don't. Last thing, what was it about the end of this game that you will always remember? We went out for the coin toss at overtime, and I remember, you know, the conversation was okay. So take it. You know, sometimes, you know, you could choose a kick too if you felt better about that, and you know, try to get field position, all the rest of it. Was there a discussion about? Bill said, "No, we're taking the ball. Great. Okay, got it." And then turning around, and when we won the, the coin toss, you could see the look on the players' faces. We're not giving them the ball. You know, that was the mindset, and you could tell the confidence level was extremely high and went out there and, and, and did what we had to do, got it down there to the two-yard line. And then, honestly, when, when James got it over, you know, it's just one of those feelings where I don't know who grabbed me or what happened. I think it was Bill. It's just such an, it's a euphoric moment that you really can't duplicate. You know what I mean? You just won a world championship in one of the craziest games of all time, and you're so excited, happy, and all the rest of it. I mean, it's a, it's a great feeling. The last thing I will just tell you is that you've had some interesting decisions to make in the last few years about what you're going to do with your life. Yeah. And on a night like this, you've just got to be thinking that I made the right call. Yeah, I mean, I'm around a, gr a, a great group of people here. Great, great people. I work for great people. I love the coaches we work with, love the players we work with. I mean, this is why I do it. You know, I. It's not a materialistic thing for me. It's it's about being around people that want to try to do things the right way and go compete as hard as we can to try to win a championship. And, and to see it come true is an amazing accomplishment for this group. This group's a unique group of people. And uh, I'm really happy for all of them. Josh McDaniels, congratulations. Thank you, Peter. It's the MMQB Podcast. I want to ask my listeners a quick question. How would you like to get three home-cooked meals for free? Well, all you have to do is remember these four letters, MMQB. Easy enough, right? Now keep listening and I'll tell you how to get those free meals. Look, we all know there's nothing better than a great home-cooked meal and no one makes it easier for you to do that than Blue Apron. Their mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. Blue Apron knows that when you cook with incredible ingredients, you make incredible meals. So they set the highest quality standards for their suppliers and only bring you the best ingredients. And they bring those ingredients right to your door. Customize your recipes each week based on your preferences. Blue Apron has several delivery options so you can choose what fits your needs. And there's no weekly commitment so you only get deliveries when you want them. Now comes that part about the three free meals I was telling you about. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash MMQB. Think about it. Three meals free just by adding in MMQB. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. Once again, that's blueapron.com slash MMQB. Blue Apron. It's a better way to cook. And now my conversation with San Francisco 49ers general manager, John Lynch. Back on the MMQB podcast with Peter King, I'm here with the new general manager of the San Francisco 49ers, John Lynch. So, John, I have to tell you, I'm, it's Sunday night a week ago, and we're recording this at the Super Bowl on Friday at the Super Bowl. So... I'm finished up with Monday Morning Quarterback, my column, and I just said, oh, man, I'm so glad to be done with this. And then all of a sudden, I start seeing this stuff about 
Lynch, and I'm thinking to myself, what is it, Paxton Lynch? What, what is, somebody is in the news. <laughs> and then I see Lynch and the, the 49ers, and I read, and I said, John Lynch, the general manager of the San Francisco 49ers. Yeah. I have to say this. You did a very, very good job, as did Jed York and the 49ers, of shutting up. Yeah. Nobody knew until it happened. So I want to hear the story of exactly how this happened. Well, first of all, sorry for causing you to lose a little sleep. You were all done, and, and I threw that wrench in there. But listen, here's, here's the story, and, and uh, you know I think it, it surprises a lot of people. It still surprises me, to be quite frank. Uh, when I hear you say new general manager of the San Francisco 49ers, that sounds different, and, and it sounds weird. But By the way, that's Bill Walsh's franchise. That's yes, all. Yeah. You know, the guy you played for, the yeah. guy who loved you at Stanford. Yeah. But anyway, go yeah. ahead. But here, here's the genesis of it. Uh, I happened to do a lot of Falcons games for Fox this year, and early on, I saw something different in Kyle Shanahan, uh, and when this when this class of head coaches started to come to the forefront, I was on record saying I thought he was the catch of this of this coaching cycle. Uh, so I was very intrigued by Kyle. I happened to do the division game, the divisional game, uh, Falcons against the Seahawks, and um, so afterwards, you know, I season's over for me. My last work for Fox of the year. And, uh, you know, I watched the Packers game as, as they continued to roll. And uh, it was about probably Tuesday of that week that I, I picked up the phone and called Kyle just to congratulate him and said, boy, that was, uh, Kyle, that was masterful what you did, both in the Seattle game and the Green Bay game. You guys are really rolling. Congratulations. Uh, by that time, you know, he was becoming a, a favorite, if, if not, you know, the, these rules about, you know, when you can announce that a guy's a coach, we got to deal with those. So I always have to pump the brakes. But it was becoming very clear that Kyle may well be the, the head coach of the 49ers. We're talking about issues, you know, in broadcasting as a game analyst, you get a great, you develop great relationships because you're in every every city. And so we're talking assistant coaches. We're talking all these things. And, you know, the conversation kind of went to, hey, Kyle, you know, four years ago, Elway talked to me. He brought me in and talked to me about doing this someday. And I won't say that I've been consumed by it, but it's always kind of out there. And Peter, you know, the one thing I think anybody who played in this game and now is broadcasting, I think Troy Aikman would tell you the same thing. It's a wonderful, wonderful career. It's very uh, rewarding. But there is, I think... You're kind a, of able to have a family, norm, much more exactly. normal family life. Exactly. Now, you are gone 24 straight weekends of a year. But there's there's a void that's that's constantly there and you know what i finally came to know it's it's called a scoreboard <laughs> you, you don't win or lose when you broadcast a game you can do a great job i came to rationalize it that i was you know football is uh is very important to me it's been very good to me i i love it and so i came to rationalize it rod marinelli once told me when i was struggling with that very thing here's what you're doing you're presenting football in the best possible manner you know football so that's how i rationalized it but anyway this talk with kyle starts going on and kyle says would you be interested and uh we start talking about the you know the the work i had done and here's how i would approach it and kyle called me back about a half hour later he said i can't stop thinking about this would you talk with Jed? And uh, next thing you know, Jed York and I are on the phone. And early on, you know, the story broke uh, this this week that I was doing it, you know, the silence part to test Jed York. And that's true, but that was probably third on the list. I've got four kids. My wife, when I went to her, she said, John, listen, it, it's hard to 
for me to wrap my arms around something until you have an offer. So develop this thing if you wish, if you want to, but I don't want to tell the kids at this point because kids get anxiety about that. And that spoke to me. I've got a son who's going to be, he's a junior right now. He checks pro football talk. He checks MMQB on a constant basis. I didn't want him learning, and that's the way this world works now. So, right. So that was number one. Eric Shanks and the people at Fox have been wonderful to me. Eric has known that this was, would be a possibility at some point. He he approached me years ago when he heard that I was doing some things with the Broncos, and all he asked is that I I don't ever blindside him. And so for those reasons, they were the top priority. But also because I had I had read the stories that there were a lot of leaks out of that San Francisco building. I said, Jed, it's very important to me. And actually, it's a non-starter. If this gets out, my name's out of the hat. And uh, to his credit. That's really interesting. Yeah. Very his, interesting. And it worked. It, it stayed quiet. I will say, I can't name him, but one one person got had, had the story. And... Uh, and he's a good man because he never leaked it. And I told him the reasons why. And he's a father. And I said, as a father, I'm asking you to hold on to it. And they did. So, John, tell me a little bit about doing games on TV, leaving the stadium at the end of the day, going to get a plane to go home, and not caring really about the outcome of the game. Just caring about the outcome, saying, boy, I hope I didn't do anything dumb, say anything yeah. stupid today. Yeah. But was there a feeling in the pit of your stomach that I really need to care about winning and losing? Yeah, it's it's funny when you when you mention that because it takes me through that process. That wasn't always there. I mean, you have a blast when you're doing games. It's a team. So there's your team. People say, do you miss the locker room? Of course you do. But now I got my new locker room. You got men and women that – and I think people would be shocked how many men and women it take to put on an NFL broadcast, and it's the same thing. And each and every week you're creating a story and you let the game play itself out. But it's a monumental task each and every time you put a broadcast on TV. And I loved every bit of it. Kevin Burkhart, who I worked with, I can't say, he's one of my best friends in life. He's going to get to the top of this business. He's supremely talented. Your producers, Pete Macheska, your director, Artie Kim. I mean, you become very close friends. You spend a lot of time with these folks. So it wasn't as if I was leaving every game saying, oh, man, I just, you know, there's no score. I, I had a blast doing it. Wasn't it fun for you, though, to realize you were climbing the ladder? Yes. At Fox. Yeah. You came to Fox as just a guy. Yeah. And you leave Fox as the number two analyst yeah. behind Buck and Aikman. Yeah. And, it, you know, just the fact I, I like being number one. And there was this guy named Aikman <laughs> that, <laughs> that I understood. Hey, he deserves it. And, you know, Troy always kept me gamefully employed because Troy would always mess with, I don't think mess with Fox, but he, I don't know how much, how much longer I'm going to do this. So they always needed John Lynch. And I always thank Troy for that. Um, you know, and who knows where Troy goes in years to come. But um, that void wasn't there, but it was kind of more like off-season. And you, you assess your life. And frankly, in the off-season, uh, it's wonderful because I could dive in my kid's life. But, you know, after, after about three weeks of it, you get a little bored. And, you, and so I think it was just not – it wasn't there each and every week because I had a blast. And this wasn't on my mind. I want, I want every coach and general manager – to know when I was coming in their building, I wasn't soaking you up for information. That's just a byproduct of what we do. You know, John Elway once told me, you know, when he wanted to bring me on, he said, I don't have that role for you right now, but what you're doing, I think 
can prepare you better than anything because you get to go take a look, a real global look at the entire league. Did you and, at one point job shadow John Elway for part of an off season? Yeah, he brought me in. I went to the combine. When was this? This was probably the second year that John uh, took the job in Denver, right. and uh, he just. Yeah, we were very good friends. He he kind of, uh, you know, we have a lot of parallels in our life, football, baseball players at Stanford, same fraternity at Stanford. Uh, he was about 10 years ahead of me. We had the similar high school coach, a guy named Jack Newmeyer, who's passed. And so there were a lot of connections. And when I came to Denver, he just looked out for me, and we, be, we developed a great friendship. So I was there as he took the job in Denver. He said, you got to do this. John used to give me a hard time. That TV, at the end of the day, what are you doing? Nothing. <laughs> we want to win world championships, you know, when we're having a good time. And um, so he, he gave me a hard time. But when it came down to it, he said, look, and I'm not going to ask you to leave what you have because I don't have that job for you. But just know that I think you would always be good in this. And if that job were to come along, I'd bring you in in a second. And so that kind of started the whole process for me. But I was also that kid. My dad used to take me out of school on draft day when I was in third grade and ESPN. And I used to try to predict the draft. So there's always kind of, in, as a player, I would do that. Most players don't watch the draft. Um, I would go home and watch the draft. My wife would be, are you serious? We're going to watch this for three days. And so those things intrigued me. And uh I, you know, I say, I'm saying all this, Peter, and here we are. <laughs> you know? It's unbelievable. Yeah. It's the MMQB Podcast. Buying tickets online for sports and concerts has been a confusing process for a long time. What if I told you you could do it with SeatGeek in 90 convenient seconds? So just listen to me. It's always hard to find the best deal for that game or show that you want to go to, and none of those older ticket sites want to change that. But SeatGeek is different. They've come along and created an amazing app and website that makes it easier than ever for fans to buy and sell tickets. And SeatGeek wants to help you get the most bang for your buck. That's why every ticket on SeatGeek is given a grade based on value. You'll immediately see any underpriced seats and be able to find the best deals that fit your budget. Now pay attention. Here's the cool part. My listeners get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. 20 bucks, right in your pocket. And to get it, all you do is this. Download the free SeatGeek app and go to the Settings tab and click Add a Promo Code. Then enter promo code MMQB. SeatGeek will then send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. It doesn't get any easier than that. Download the free SeatGeek app and enter promo code MMQB today. And if I can just add one thing, my major, major thanks to SeatGeek for sponsoring the MMQB's live podcast at the Super Bowl in Houston. And I'll tell you why they were so great. By SeatGeek selling the tickets on their site for nothing, we were able to raise $8,500 for the Caroline School, a school for special needs children in Houston. $8,500 because SeatGeek was able to sell these tickets and took on the entire process of selling and distributing the tickets themselves. So, my hearty thanks. When you support SeedGeek, you're supporting a darn good company. With John Lynch, the new general manager of the San Francisco 49ers. So, John, you know that the major criticism of this hire is that you're not a scout. Yes. You haven't been a scout. The last time an almost an exact parallel situation yeah. happened, Matt Millen is the number two guy at Fox. He leaves to become the general manager of the Detroit Lions. 
I don't think Matt Millen is allowed in the city limits of Detroit anymore. <laughs> in other words, he's not a very well-liked man. Yeah. So for all those people who would say, you know, this is way beyond John Lynch's pay grade, for all the people in the NFL, for all the veteran scouts yeah. who are saying, oh, my God, this guy just jumped the line. Yeah. You know, what's fair about this? What do you say? I, w- I would say I appreciate your cynicism. I would probably be a cynic if I was playing safety for 15 years and some guy came and all of a sudden he's the starter you know, out of the blue. And I understand that, listen, I can do interviews. People are saying, wow, he did a great job with the, uh, with the local media in San Francisco. Well, that's a start. And we want to create some positivity. We want to get the fans back and excited. But I understand full well that the only way I'm going to earn the trust of all those people who might be cynical is to put a great product on the team that's competing for championships. And so I understand there's a lot of work. But, uh, Peter, one thing, you know, my parents taught me and I'll forever be endeared is that if you set your mind to it, buy in and believe that you can accomplish it. And I really have a belief. I, here's what I tell people. I told Jed York the same thing. I'm not going to know a lot of these things. I'm going to have to learn the salary cap. I'm going to have to learn how to negotiate with agents, all these things. But here's what I do know, Jed. I know football inside and out. I'll put my football acumen up against anyone. Now, does that mean I know how to draw an evaluation as good as someone who's done it for years and years? No, but I'll figure that out. I'm, how exactly will you learn that? Yeah, well, I've done some of it, you know, so... For John, I've been doing projects over the years. I've always done the safeties for him, you know, those kind of things. And so what do you do? You will look just, at some tape of safeties? Yeah, they give me an iPad and, you know, go go crank out the evaluations. I haven't done it the last two years, but prior to that, I was doing it. And uh, Is there so, a safety you evaluated that John Elway drafted? No, or because, brought in as a free agent? No, because yeah. they never they – never, but he asked my opinion on T.J. Ward, for instance. You know, um, I, it, it's fun. I was looking at the other day, going back at like the 2012 and Harrison Smith, I believe that was his year, yeah. and looking at what I wrote about him. And that helped me because I said, you know what? These are pretty darn good. <laughs> you know, And so um, I should know that position. So, What did you like about Harrison Smith? Well, I just I felt like he played a lot bigger. You know, you look at him and it says 6'1", 210 pounds. To me, it always felt on the field like he was 6'3", 220 pounds because I think at, a, at the safety position, it's about impact. Uh, because they play all over the field, you can have a tremendous impact on a game. And I felt like Harrison was in the minds of quarterbacks, was in the minds of running backs as they were thinking about falling forward for an extra yard. And then he, he matched it with, with really nice range. And so I thought he was a very good, fluid athlete, physical enough, and now he's become even more physical. He was a guy I really liked. So, And then I got to tell you, you know, I had a, a great ally in John basically saying, you can do this. Don't, don't worry about all those things. You'll figure it out. You're competitive. You Plus, here's you, the thing that people don't understand, I think, about John Elway. I, I, I've said this a few times this week. John Elway is not going to Ames, Iowa, to look for the <laughs> look for the day three tight end. Yeah. John Elway's going to the combine. Yeah, you know he's gonna he and he's gonna head the draft meetings and everything like that. But that's why you have a staff, that's and right. that's why you hire people who you trust. I guess that would be my my next question about hiring people who you really trust. Do you know a lot of people who you trust that you can say? My job is dependent on him telling me whether we should take Deshaun Watson or Mitch Trubisky. Well, Adam Peters is a great example of that. And 
People say, how do you know Adam Peters? Well, I sat next to him when I went in those draft meetings. Uh, He's the Denver executive that you hired. He's our vice president of player personnel, and he used to be with the Patriots. Matt Russell brought him over to the the Denver Broncos, and John brought him over. Actually, he he preceded John, but he's just a brilliant evaluator. Uh, John will tell you he would have been a GM in three years. I mean, I think a lot of people in this league will tell you that about Adam Peters. And, uh, you know, I just didn't know if I could get him. And uh, that was a huge get for me because he's a guy I do trust. He's a guy who sees football the same way that I do. And, you know, we, we're not going to stop there. Um, the other part, Peter, is some unknown. We got a guy out there, Tom Gamble, who's been in the league for 29 years. And they were fearful that once they gave me the job that, that you know, I was going to say we got to move on. Well, why wouldn't I soak up the information of a guy who, from all accounts, is a gifted scout who's been in this thing for 29 years? Are you going to keep Tom Gamble? Well, we're going to certainly live with it for a while and Mm -hmm. see if we can all live together. And so... Those are things, and, and that's the way I'm going about this. I, I've, I've, uh, but I will say from doing games, you're around these teams a lot, and you develop relationships. And uh, that's one thing that I, that I think is a strength of mine is, is relationships and communication. And I have a lot of contacts in this league, and I plan on using them. John, I'm really curious. This is what I always think about teams and about personnel people and coaches and everything. You can have the greatest chemistry. You can have the greatest people in your front office. You can love your head coach, whoever he is. You love your coaching staff. Nobody wins without a quarterback. Nobody wins without a quarterback. I don't care what you have. I don't care if your coach is Bill Belichick with Bill Walsh as your offensive coordinator. So my question to you is, what do you consider to be the important traits in the long-term quarterback, whoever he is, of the San Francisco 49ers. Yeah, Peter, you know, I, I, I think that's what broadcasting – I think there's a, a side of me as a player that never wanted to give the Peyton Mannings, the Tom Brady's, that kind of credit, that they were that important because I had to play against these guys. And so there's a side of you that says, oh, they aren't that good. Uh, well, I knew they were that good. But broadcasting has really hit that home. I mean, everybody has seen the stat in the last couple of weeks that just blew my mind. What is it? Brady – Manning and Roethlisberger, 14 of the last 16 Super Bowls have been the AFC quarterback. That tells you how important that position is. To me, um, you know, it's another advantage. When we do these production meetings and you sit down with the Peyton Mannings, the Tom Brady's, the Drew Brees, the guys that are the elite, I think there's a certain DNA that they all share. They all have different personalities, but they're all the same guy. They're maniacal about details. They love football. There's a leadership quality that people want to follow them. And then I think there's a quality that's hard to measure. You can just see it, their, their ability to quickly process information. Because the, the way this league is now, so multiple substitutions, how quickly can you process information? Um, I think those are the traits. Can you thrive with chaos all around you? I, I think one thing that helps me, and this I'm not to say here I'm going to be a great evaluator. Of, I came into Stanford as a quarterback. I was a highly recruited quarterback. I played under Denny Green in the West Coast system. So I've lived it, and frankly, I wasn't, wasn't good enough. That's why I became a safety. But I, I think that gave me a great vantage point as a, as a safety. I always used that to my advantage. I knew what their thought process was. And so – I, I think I understand a little bit of that, and I tell you, that's one thing about Kyle Shanahan. I think that's a gift of his is um, 
you know, what I liked about him when he was with RG3, he helped design that offense to really play to his strengths. He kind of invented an offense that that was a compromise between what they really wanted to do yes. and what that quarterback did. I will always wonder, by the way, if Robert Griffin III doesn't get hurt yeah. at the end of that first year, yeah. I will always wonder really what would have happened. Uh, he uh, might really, if he had accepted a lot of the changes going more toward a classic kind of pro style but mobile right. quarterback, I think he really could have been great. He threw such a beautiful deep ball. Still does. And I mean it's not over, but right. it's probably over. And I will I'll always wonder what would have happened. I've talked with Mike Shanahan a lot about that. And Mike, you know, the the sad Mike says that's the, the word he uses, sad, because if he would have just stuck with the process. Robert I think let some outside influences right. get in his head that he needed to be a pocket passer. Mike kept telling him, we'll get there. We're not there yet, though. You're not ready to do that. So let's ease in and let's yeah. – we're trying to help you out. We're not trying to hurt I you. Think, I think so yeah. often – I think really so often what happens, and I think it happened with Cam Newton yes. this past off season. I think the people around him – when you're an MVP, when you're in the Super Bowl, if you're Rookie of the Year, if you're everything – like I, I, I watched Dak Prescott at the Super Bowl. I mean, to me – He's going to handle his business, mm-hmm. okay? And he's going to be back doing what he's supposed to do, you know, to be great. Today, I think, is February 3rd or something like that. I talked to Russell Wilson last week. I said, so what's your off season going to be like? I mean, you go into Maui, you go in here. He says, well, next Wednesday, start of my off season program, February 1st. I said, you know, you're allowed to take a few weeks to just go lay down somewhere. And Soppy said, "No, I, I, I'm gonna." So, but, but, so I mean that about Cam Newton. He did 900 commercials. He did all this stuff, whatever. And I think RG3 was almost exactly the same way. Not necessarily commercial oriented, but he had people in his head saying, "Pocket quarterback, all this right. stuff." Why would you not trust Mike Shanahan? Yeah. Why, why do you not trust that guy? And again. I know there was a lot of stuff that happened there, but I'm always surprised when people who don't really know the business that well think that they know more than a coach who's won two Super Bowls. Yeah. You know, I, I got a glimpse at the end of my career. It would have been year 16. I went to New England, and it was, albeit only for three weeks, but it gave me a great image of why they're so successful. And the story I love telling... It was my second day there. Uh, we had a rookie show that night, the night before. And it was so my first day I come in, there's a rookie show. Uh, rookies are spoofing Belichick. I mean, it was really good stuff. And it was, you know, I'm going, gosh, these guys really do have personality. Everybody says there's no personality here. It was hilarious. Bill took it well. But the next day he came in. And so my second day on the job and I'm learning a playbook. I'm sitting next to Matt Patricia in the meeting room, Vrabel and Brewski and Rodney Harrison are all kind of where we're in the vet row and Belichick, great stuff last night, fellas. But we got some stuff to do, and I got some stuff to get, and he's not using stuff, to get off my chest. And it starts with you, and he points right at Brady. And I'm going, wow, what's going on here? And Tom had made the cardinal sin on his radio show, had talked about an injury. He had a stress fracture in his foot. And, you know, he just proceeded to air him out for 15 minutes. You used to be tough, Brady. You used to want to win. Now you're, at this time, he's dating Giselle. Now you're more interested in dating supermodels. And with that, (laughs) I'm thinking, 
you know, Tom Brady's going to punch him in well, the jaw. No, but I'm thinking <laughs> night after the rookie show, everyone's in a good mood. Bill was laughing five minutes ago, so he must be joking. So I burst out in laughter, and the whole room like stops and looks at me like, are you nuts? And Patricia grabs my arm like, what are you doing? And Belichick does, you know, peeks out. And that night, I knew I was going to leave. Bill's got it set up that his guy Bearish sits there, and to leave the office, you got to basically clock out, right? And you got to yeah. go by Belichick's office. And it's like one o'clock in the morning. I met with Dom Capers, trying to get the system down, and I walked really fast to try to get back. And and right as I'm opening the door, Bearish says, "John, Bill wants to see you." <laughs> and uh, I went in there, and Bill says, "I said, Coach, I'm so sorry. I had I thought you were joking." I, I he goes, "Do you like it?" Did, did you like that? But the, the moral of the story, he's still coaching Tom Brady incredibly hard. And I, I think that's another quality of these guys. They never want to stop. I know Peyton very well. He, he's still studying. I mean, we, we, we Adam Gaze tells yeah. these stories yeah. about how much Peyton loved to be coached. Yes. And it was a challenge for Adam Gase every week. If he could find two things that Peyton said, oh, yeah, yeah, good. Yeah, let's, let's do that. Right. And – uh, hey, look, Brady is incredible for a lot of reasons, but one of them is that his desire to be coached is really, really important. And I think a lot of people don't necessarily, when he has a press conference, he sounds like Joe Goody Two-Shoes, right. which 70% of his life, he is Joe Goody Two-Shoes. Right. That's who he is. I mean, there's 20% where he's a raving nut job on the field as you know, because he's a competitor. But I guess I think that the quarterbacks who are really, really great are exactly what you say. They can take coaching. They are very, very quick on their feet. Obviously, I think accuracy, I mean, I don't know what in the world happened to Cam Newton this right. year. He became an inaccurate passer. How, do you, how does that happen? Yeah. But that, to me, is, is like, I think you really got it right when you talk about the traits that great quarterbacks have. They all have. share them. And, yeah. uh the point it's it's fun talking about this but we need we need that you know and and we're going to go in there and evaluate it we're going to we're going to give everyone i'm having open mind my first and it, and it started you know i got my ipad 2 days ago and we're cranking we're looking at the best thing the first thing that i need to do i've talked to tony dungy a lot you got to know what you have first and then as soon as i get uh, our new head coach <laughs> um i can I, I need to sit down and say what is it that you're looking for because we got to be together i mean the best organizations you know earlier you were talking i think you were trying to make the point about how important quarterbacks and i believe that but i'll tell you peter the one thing that i saw in places where there's a successful culture john schneider and pete carroll as good as anybody in this league they're lockstep dan right. quinn and dimitrov they're they're speaking the same language Belichick has a different model, but everyone's in the same direction. In places that are perennial losers, that's one thing I learned more that it's obvious as soon as you step in the door because the personnel's guy is saying, hey, if we had someone coaching this guy, and then the coaches are saying, if I had any players, you know, everyone's blaming each other. And so I know that, you know, harmony, lack of ego, checking your ego at the door, all those things are critical to making this thing happen. You're listening to the MMQB Podcast. Every football team knows the two-point play can be a winning move, a real game-changer. That's why State Farm is here to help you combine your home and auto insurance. Two great policies protecting two of your most valuable possessions, all with one company. It's a great call that can save you time and save you money and simplify your life. 
Because State Farm understands your life is about more than insurance, especially this time of year when everybody knows life is all about football. Football, football, football. So go for the win and score yourself some savings by combining your home and auto. It's just another way State Farm is here to help life go right. Talk to an agent today at 1-800-STATE-FARM. Finishing up with John Lynch. John, what influence did Bill Walsh have on your life? Yeah. Well, first of all, I don't think I ever would have played football in the NFL or my senior year had it not been for Bill Walsh. I had made a move from quarterback to safety right before my junior year. Three weeks before the junior year, I went in Denny Green. Baseball was going very well for me. I was going to be a high draft choice. And football just, I was frustrated. I was the number two quarterback from the time I walked on that campus. Denny wanted me to stay at quarterback. He said, you're one snap away. Just hang in there. And I said, coach, I'm either going to go transfer and play quarterback somewhere or I'm going to commit myself to baseball and go full throttle. And the conversation went to, what do you want to do? I just want to play. Okay, would you would you think about playing? First, he said outside linebacker. I said, no, no, uh, safety if we're going to do that. But I said, so then I play that year, but I only play about 30% of the snaps. Uh, they kind of ease me in. And uh, But that offseason, I had signed with the Marlins, and one day I get a call. I hadn't signed my contract yet, and it was Bill Walsh. And he said, I want you to come down to the office. Of course, as a 20-year-old kid, you're going to take that invitation. I went down there, and he said, congratulations on the Marlins deal. Can I talk to you about football? And I said, sure, coach. And I couldn't believe I was shaking. I was in Bill Walsh's office, and he says, hey, your opportunity is what it is, and I appreciate it, but you can be a Pro Bowl safety in the NFL. And I'm looking at him like I'm looking at you, and I'm saying, with all due respect, and I said this to him, it took a lot of courage because I'm talking to Bill Walsh, with all due respect, Coach, I played 30% of the snaps. I couldn't start, and, and we were a decent team. We weren't a great team. What leads you to believe? And like the great Bill Walsh, who always every detail, he had a tape that he had made, and he showed a play where I came up and run support. And then he had Ronnie Lott doing the same thing. And then he wow. had me breaking up a pass, and Ronnie Lott doing a very similar play. And that day I left saying, called the Florida Marlins and said, hey, I'm coming back from my senior year. And they said, well, you understand you're not getting the same contract. And so, first of all, I, th- I learned that, the attention to detail, the eye. He trusted his gut, and he said, I think this kid could be – I think he was genuine. I don't think he was doing that to everyone. And uh, I-, I just watched him. Now, here's the guy who's striving for perfection at every single practice, knowing that um, it may not be attainable, but that's what he was always striving for. I'll never forget the day we had a bunch of coaches, Keena Turner, Bill Ring, all these guys had never coached, but Bill wanted to give them opportunity. You know, one day he stopped practice, and he, he I never heard – Bill didn't yell that much, but he, he yelled, he blew his whistle, and he said, stop screaming and start teaching. This is about teaching. And wow. he, he aired out the coaches in front of us. I really learned about Bill Walsh on draft day. Lee Steinberg was my agent, and he put out a thing that unless John's drafted in the first round, he's going to pursue his baseball. thought it would help me out. Well, it it backfired. People didn't think I was interested. So I got called by the Ron Wolf and and, and the uh, Packers and saying, we may take you with the 31st pick. It ended up being George Teague. They took George Teague. Then I waited and waited and waited. Well, Bill Walsh got on the phone. And that's how I got taken by Tampa. He said, you're a fool not to take this guy, Sam. And uh, so Bill, I think the in- 
he's an intensely loyal uh, individual. And that wasn't just for me. That was for other kids in med school. And so all those are things that I learned about Bill and how ironic it is it that, and believe me, that played in, I knew what an iconic place the 49ers organization was. And that's our challenge to get it back uh, to where it's, it's on top like it should be. Finishing up with John Lynch. So John, I have one last question. What do you remember about throwing the first pitch in the history of the Florida Marlins organization? Uh, well, and uh, are people shocked when if yeah. they if anybody ever finds that out? Yeah, the, people do find it out. But here's unfortunately what I remember is that the first seven were balls, <laughs> so, <laughs> a four pitch walk, and then got it got to uh, three and zero, oh, and then I came back and I got it got it going. But ah, oh, wow, what a experience! Uh, Wayne Heizinga was the owner. We were at a little elementary school. And for a hard-throwing hard right-hander, the gym uh, wall, it was a brick wall, and it was about 240. And so for a hard-throwing right-hander, if, if, a, if a guy, if you jammed him, and it, they, it would go out of the park. <laughs> and so, um, Oh, you mean it was only it was a it was, short porch oh, to left so field, short, right field? To right. So to you're right. throwing hard. Guys are you're behind. in Erie, Pennsylvania? Erie, Pennsylvania. But they turned that thing that day. Mr. Heisinga brought up all the dignitaries, <laughs> and I throw the first pitch. They run out. They take my uh, hat. They take my jersey. They give me another one. Like literally, stop the game. They were every pitch. They were taking something for the mm-hmm. Hall of Fame. And so the fact that you know some of that stuff still still resides at the Baseball Hall of Fame is pretty wow. fun. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. Do you have any regrets whatsoever? That you didn't choose baseball. No. And uh, what kind of pitcher would you have been? I think I would have been a good one. I really do. I, I, I threw hard, and by virtue of being a, a quarterback, that you know the way you throw a football, you pronate your hand. Mm-hmm. I kind of I did that naturally as a baseball throw, so I had great sink. So I had heavy sink, and uh, I think it would have worked. But I tell you, now just thinking about it, as you're talking me through it, I think it it's the same reason I took this job. I learned right there. My dad wanted me to uh, – you know, play baseball. Uh, what are you doing? You know, this is look at the career, no injuries, you know, all these things. And a lot of people thought I was crazy to leave the Marlins, at, you know, where I was the second pick ever. I threw the first pitch and had a fast track to the major leagues to go play in Tampa. And then when I sat for the first two years and was really a special teams guy, but what I did, I followed my heart. That year when Bill Walsh, I realized that I love baseball, but I had to have football. And so I think I, you know, that same line of thinking is what pursued me or what would allowed me to pursue this opportunity without fear just saying hey I'm going to give it my best shot I don't fail at many things that I try in life I'm, I'm going to have some failures but we'll overcome those and to be honest Peter the uh, and this is not to denigrate the challenge that I know is in front of me and, and our organization the decision at the end had less to do with could I do the job. I was confident in that. It was more to do about can I do this to my family. You know, we've, we've got a pretty good life right now. And once my family bought in and showed some excitement and said, this isn't you choosing <laughs> the, the 49ers or us. This is us taking on a great challenge. Then I was all good. John Lynch. It's going to be a fun adventure, whatever sure happens. Is. And yeah. I look forward to documenting it and following you. I appreciate you joining me on the podcast. Thank you, Peter. And thank you for the work for the, uh, you know, the Caroline School. I've read about it on, on your site, but I know Billy O'Brien. I've seen that story. It's a very touching story. I know he's a good man. And uh, I appreciate you supporting that and the, and the other causes you do uh, with these events. Yeah, well, thanks. I mean, the great thing about Bill O'Brien, I think, is that he's – 
a real human being with his family. Yes. You know, and the world of a pro football coach is not very easy when you have a special needs child. Right. Not very easy in any way. Right. But I think he does a really, really good job, and that's really kind of what drove me. It's not much money, but we just had this great event, and there was a lot of love in the room for that school and uh, for what they're doing. So anyway, thank that's you. That's awesome. This is the MMQB Podcast. Podcast. My thanks to Josh McDaniels and John Lynch. Excellent conversations, especially coming right after the Super Bowl. You know, one of the things that I do that people who listen to this podcast probably know, but you may not know, I'm one of the 48 voters for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. The meeting occurs annually the Saturday before the Super Bowl, the results are announced on the Saturday night of Super Bowl weekend, and it always creates quite a lot of discussion in the wake of the Super Bowl. And so I thought I would take just a moment for those who don't really know very much about the process to explain that very briefly, and then also to explain what has become the real hot-button issue in the wake of this year's vote, and that is the fact that for the second consecutive year, Tara Owens, uh, who is the second on the all-time receiving yardage list in the 97-year history of the NFL, was not admitted to the Hall of Fame. So, first of all, to explain it, every year we have 15 modern-era finalists that come into this room. There are 48 voters who listen to the arguments, listen to the cases, and then vote. And the way the voting occurs is that uh, we have 15 candidates, you hear all their cases, and then those 15 candidates, you're asked to vote for your top 10. So you vote for 10, and then the accounting firm Deloitte & Touche comes in and hands the ballot to David Baker, the head of the Pro Football Hall of Fame, who then announces, here are the 10 from the first cut. So they announce the 10, and then you are asked to vote for the top five on your list from that list of 10. So Deloitte and Touche again tabulates the results and comes back, and David Baker said, here's your final five. At that point, every voter in the room votes one by one in secret ballot, just like they're all secret ballots, vote one by one for each one of the five finalists. If those five finalists get 80% or more, each one that gets 80% or more, is officially elected to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. So this year, Terrell Owens, this very accomplished NFL receiver, as I'm sure you know, did not make the cut down to 10. And just a few words about that. Number one, I voted for him for the cut down to 10. I would have voted for him for the cut down to five. And then if he were in the final five, I would have voted for him for the Hall of Fame. But He has not gotten to that final five in his first two years. So there are a lot of people who wonder, why in the world is this happening? And to understand why, you have to understand that even though the Hall of Fame tells the voters that you can only consider basically a person's football career, you can't consider uh, what he might do off the field or anything like that, over the years it's become understood that a player's leadership qualities And his value to a team can also be considered. So, for instance, the way I try to explain this to people with Michael Irvin, when he had his candidacy, 
I maintain that because I was around the Dallas Cowboys teams of the 90s a lot, maybe three or four times every year as a writer for Sports Illustrated, I got to see a lot of the Cowboys. I found out how the Cowboys, uh, you know, how they ticked. And uh, so Michael Irvin was far and away the most valuable player in terms of chemistry on that team. He was driven incessantly to win. And he did it in some un- unorthodox ways, but he got in people's faces. He got in teammates' faces. You may remember a, re- a receiver for the Cowboys named Alvin Harper. Alvin Harper uh, was not the most proactive, hardworking guy. And Michael Irvin turned him into sort of by force of will, a really hustling, hardworking football player and really helped him become a lot better. So I think that's important. On the other side, I also think it's important if you're a divisive factor inside a locker room and with a team. And covering the game for a long time, uh, there's no question at all that, you know, Terrell Owens played for five teams in the NFL. Four teams chose uh, to basically give up on him or to let him walk or to trade him. Uh, Andy Reid once fired him, basically, even as a coach of the Philadelphia Eagles, uh, even though he was a productive player. So I believe that should play a part in this. Uh, And yes, there's no question about it. In my opinion, I think every person who comes before the Hall of Fame committee should be judged on the totality of his career. And the totality of Terrell Owens' career, in my opinion, leads me to believe that I will vote for him for the Hall of Fame, even though I understand the negatives about him and the fact that there are an awful lot of teammates uh, and former coaches uh, who really didn't like him and thought he was a divisive influence. And I wrote on Monday of this week in my Monday morning quarterback column that it could be quite some time before Owens gets in. We'll see what happens. But I wanted to explain to you exactly how the process works and exactly why this guy who looks like he should be a slam dunk has not gotten in either of the first two years. And to sort of set the stage, you may fervently disagree with me on the process or how it works. But that's the reason why when the seven men stood in the end zone in the Super Bowl on Sunday and they were introduced both uh, inside the stadium and to America on Fox TV, that Terrell Owens was not a part of that picture. Anyway, that is the story with T.O. Love to hear your reaction. Send me a review on this podcast and I will be happy to read them, and to take your opinions into account. Thanks to my guests, Josh McDaniels and John Lynch. If you enjoyed these conversations, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes in the MMQB series, such as my conversations with Adam Schefter, Larry Fitzgerald, and John Elway. You can find these on the MMQB.com or on iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Listen to other podcasts in our series as well, with Albert Breer, Gary Gramling, and Andy Benoit. Thanks to the folks at Digital Media for their production work, and thanks, of course, to my sponsors, SeatGeek, Blue Apron, and State Farm. Please support them the way they support this podcast. And I'll see you next week.